So I recently got to wondering why it is that I find it much easier to think and write imaginatively outdoors. Most of my productive periods of writing, Black Sheep and Prodigals and my other recent books, occurred in the Vicarage Garden, just the other side of that window. Uh, and not just in lovely weather. Lucy, who's here, I believe, uh, who, as well as Pat, has brought me many cups of tea out there, has brought them out on chilly days when she's looked at me as if I must have lost all sanity as I'm sitting out there with kind of coats and sweaters and things on. Um, and a pause for thought, you know, is only 380 words, believe it or not, 380 words or thereabouts. But the problem is coming up with an idea. And once again, it's the garden where I unearth my best inspiration, same with sermons. Once I've got the ideas sorted, then I'm happy writing indoors, but I find that my creative juices seem to flow better in the fresh air. Maybe it's to do with some of the kind of pals that I have out there. I thought I'd sort of show you a couple, like this little fella here, for instance. I find this actually important when I'm sitting out to have my laptop, obviously, any books that I'm making reference to, and my camera with a great big long lens. So there you go, lovely greatest and uh, chaffinch. The old friend Woodpecker, you've seen him before. Uh, and look at this one, He's, he was there this week, this is a picture I took this week actually, a ring-necked parakeet. Um, they all just seem to uh, uh, appear and hang out. And once I've been there long enough, they believe that I'm St. Francis, I think, really, you know. Um, maybe it's to do with the fact that I throw seed out for them or whatever. But um, anyway, it turns out, actually, that neuroscience confirms my experience that time spent outdoors helps actually to increase the blood flow to the brain. Apparently, students study better outdoors. It's not just a kind of uh, ploy that they come up with. So apparently, it's true, nature not only makes us healthier, happier, but also more creative. The imagination is stimulated. It's a well-known fact out there, if you check, by being outdoors. To imagine, as we did earlier through this lovely box of wreaths, maybe we'll open it again later, um, to imagine is such an amazing thing, isn't it? It's such an amazing gift. The writer and theologian Frederick Beekner argues that imagination is perhaps as close as humans get to being godlike, creating things from nothing. Imagination, he reckons, is a power that, to one degree or another, everybody has and can develop, like whistling, he says. Like muscles, it can be strengthened through practice and exercise. Let's all sit here, he says, until we can imagine the taste of a strawberry. Beekner says, sit there until you taste it. And if I said, one by one, raise your hand when you can taste the strawberry, eventually, he says, the last hand would be raised. Or he goes on and says other things. Imagine the voice of your grandfather. Or the smell of a city pavement just after it's rained. So many things that we can conjure up our brains can conjure up. And there are many kinds of poverty, you know, in the world, each carrying its own burden of suffering. But I think one of the worst kinds of poverty is impoverishment of imagination. When people have no room in their consciousness to imagine because other pressing needs 
or experiences or overwhelming emotions just fill all the space. When people find it impossible to transcend their circumstances and imagine things being different to the way they are, I find, you know, boredom's a thing that happens to me and I, I find I can, I can be sitting in meetings, not, not any meetings here, any, I mean with you, of course, <laughs> but, uh, but I can find myself at times in meetings and uh, I've just kind of switched off, you know, look like I'm attentive, um, but actually my imagination's taken me somewhere else, you know, where I'm going to be tonight, what I'm going to watch on the TV with Pat or where I'm going to be at the weekend or holidays or, or whatever. Um, the so-called American dream is the sense, the belief, that anyone can be who or what they choose. The sky's the limit. An, <laughs> and we've seen that proven. Uh, it's an amazing mentality which has actually produced so many incredible and wonderful stories, actually, as well as a few not so good. However, for countless people in the United States, let alone the rest of the world, the capacity to dream, to imagine, is hopelessly restrained by circumstances beyond their control. One of the greatest gifts, I think, as parents, or indeed as a community, that we can impart to our children is to provide a secure environment, environment and the stimulus for imagination to flourish. I was reading about just somebody just this week uh, who uh, said this little girl had come into their care and uh, they read a, a story at night and she said that she'd never heard a story before. No one had ever read a, a story before. That's such a tragic thing. So back to my outdoors experience. I don't want to over-project or anything, but I can't help noticing that it was outdoors on the roof of a house where he was staying that Pisa had a mind-blowing experience, a dream or a vision that not only transformed his life and experience, but altered the direction and the fortunes, really, of the church. Incidentally, being on the roof of a house wasn't quite so crazy as it now sounds. Houses at the time often had roof terraces. This is one of my favourite stories in the New Testament, and it's a great hinge point in early Christian history. Peter assumed that Jesus and his message basically belonged to the Jews and no one else. They were the chosen ones. The Gentiles were the unwashed. Without the Ethiopian eunuch, who we heard about last week, and Peter's visit to Cornelius' house, recorded in Acts 10 and 11, and later, of course, the Apostle Paul, we may never have known about Jesus. He'd have been a localised phenomenon in first century Judaism. So far as Peter was concerned, Gentiles were the others, the outsiders, the great unclean. And then through this freaky, psychedelic dream, he realised that his God was too small. His religion, too preoccupied with rules. He understood that people he viewed as other were really friends and fellow travellers. And that was a massive shift of imagination, basically, for Peter. Perhaps it was being in the wild outdoors, on the roof, with the sound of the birds and the smell of nature that helped Peter recognise the smallness of his vision. The sense that God couldn't possibly belong just to one people, one faction, one species, actually, of being, that the whole earth was full of God's glory, full of God's glorious presence. I often say that faith and hope are really 
products of the imagination. They're, they're basically expressions of imagination. Hope is imagination lurking. That's how I like to think of it. Hope is imagination lurking beneath the surface of desperation or despair, whispering, sometimes very quietly so we barely hear it, don't give up. Don't give up. Maybe something different is going to happen. Hope is imagination clinging, sometimes for dear life, onto a different vision of reality. Faith, on the other hand, is imagination turned into action, inspiring a courageous response. In fact, I would almost say that faith and courage could be seen as synonyms. Courage is what faith kind of looks like, often in practice. Hope is imagination keeping other possibilities alive. It's, it's an anchor for the soul, the New Testament says. Faith is when we act on our imagination, when we actively place our trust in what we can imagine and step out on it. <clears throat> Rituals, rites of passage, are imaginative ways of reconstructing reality through imagination, through play acting, really. I mean, what we'll do in a few moments' time, sharing bread and wine in communion is, is a game, really, in one sense. It's a form of play acting, summarised in our declaration together, though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. That's a transformative statement that's part of a play-acting ritual. Communion is a holy game whereby we join ourselves with one another and with Jesus and all he represents. The potential of ritual to transform reality is utterly endless. Early on in my time here at St Luke's, in fact, it was before I was the vicar, and may even have been just before I was ordained, actually, but uh, very early on in my time here, uh, Pat and I designed a ritual of separation for Sarah, who was struggling to move on. Some of you know Sarah. She was struggling to move on from a divorce uh, to be able to discover a new relationship. Even after six years of separation, she was still finding it hard to go forward to leave behind a sense of guilt and failure, to leave behind the sense, actually for her, that God disapproved of her, disapproved of what had happened, and therefore she hadn't got a right to go on to have another relationship. And that was all connected with the sort of theology and the Christian mentality that she had grown up with and experienced in the past. Pastoral counselling helped her, but she needed something Else, She needs something really at a more kind of emotional level, really, to release her from the guilt, pain, and disappointment that she was experiencing. And Pat suggested to Sarah that a rite of passage might help. It's a play act, moving forward. So we created a ritual with her, tailor-made to her particular perceived needs. The event took place during a dinner party uh, with a dozen invited friends and family members. I think probably some of you are in this room, actually. Um, it was quite a small gathering around the dinner table. And in the midst of the meal, Sarah uh, confessed her sense of failure in the marriage, something she really felt the need to do, even though I didn't think she did, but it was what she felt that really mattered. And then we all together said to her, Sarah, God forgives you. Forgive yourself. A little later... Uh, another one of Pat's designs, she cut a symbolic ribbon at the door of the room with a pair of scissors 
and joyfully walked out, boldly walked out, uh, a liberated woman, soon actually to meet Greg, to whom I married her in this room here. Imagining herself going forward, surrounded by supportive friends, actually was a transformative experience. It made all the difference. And I could tell you lots of other similar experiences to that. Reimagining her circumstances enabled Sarah to overcome her fear and move forward. Fear, too, is a form of imagination. It's really the flip side, really, the, the underbelly of faith. Faith, uh, fear rather, is faith's shadow side. Both faith and fear powerfully shape our lives, our decision-making, our relationships, our experience of just being alive. Fear cripples our capacity to live fully, to move forward. In her book, Saving Jesus from Those Who Are Right, which I wish I'd written, <laughs> Saving Jesus from Those Who Are Right, the feminist theologian Carter Haywood writes a poem which says this. It says, fear shrinks us. It tightens our muscles, especially our heart. It contorts our faces and gives us several of them. It distorts our vision. We see the world as too big for us and ourselves as too small for one another and we turn inward seeking safe space. We mistake caution for wisdom and safety for love. We see friends as enemies and we do not see the enemy at all, the fear that is drying us up. We're fine, thank you. And we are becoming smaller and less vulnerable and more in control. Now, of course, not all fear is bad. Of course not. There are situations where fear is an appropriate response. And in fact, if you don't have it, you're in trouble. It's wise to be afraid of that grizzly bear that you sometimes meet on the Holloway Road. <laughs> it's, uh, it's good to be afraid of walking on railway lines or to fear a violent individual or a fierce mob. But even in situations of genuine threat, it's possible to mistake caution for wisdom and thereby give fear the upper hand when courage and clear judgment might serve us well in an encounter with danger or violence. Fear causes us to freeze physically, often, as well as emotionally, and so contributes to our victimization or oppression. But it's not fear of violence catastrophe or real danger that diminishes our humanity. It's the fear that has no real basis, our fear of those who are different, that uh, shrinks and diminishes us. In one of her poems, another one, to the one we heard earlier, Mary Oliver says, keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. So that's the title I gave to the talk today, because that sums it all up. Keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. Fear tends to fill up all the space so there's no room for anything else. All that fills our consciousness is negative imagination. And this is what faith is about, making room for the unimaginable or keeping room in our religious and spiritual consciousness, but also in our lives and circumstances in our expectations of ourselves or maybe of others. So just take a moment now. 
I want you to imagine that I'm coming around with the box and sprinkling some imagination on you. You might want to just close your eyes for a moment. Is there something in our experience which leads to our imagination being pulled down the direction of fear instead of hope and faith? to allow your imaginative juices of faith and hope for the future to come into play. We're all facing, to some extent, a new future with my departure from these shores. And um, for me, this is, this is something that I'm speaking to myself, but it's for us all. We can imagine bad things, we can imagine good things. Whoever you are, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. The world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things, which is another way of saying what Julian of Norwich says, and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be done.